and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I am your host, Chanan Zhang. Today's interview is with David Kern, whom, along with his colleagues, recently published their findings on how the loss of one's ability to smell can predict impending death. It may seem like an uncanny connection, but as it turns out, not completely surprising. We also talk about other ways that olfaction plays a role in our lives, our love lives, that is, and how men and women may approach smell differently. colleagues published this paper on how the loss of your ability to smell is a sign of impending death, mm-hmm. which is kind of spooky. But <laughs> So how did this question come about, and can you talk a little bit about what you found? My name is David Kern. I'm a PhD student here at the University of Chicago in the Department of Comparative Human Development. We're a, we're a group of researchers. We call ourselves the Olfactory Research Group, or the ORG for short. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, there's been a lot of literature that has shown that the sense of smell is related to quite a few uh, health outcomes, such as cognition. Uh, a lot of people may be familiar with the sense of smell being related to neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. I'm particularly interested in how the sense of smell uh, relates to behaviors, so stuff like uh, chemo signaling and communication, so sort of like pheromone type stuff. Um, And so we're all interested in olfaction and health outcomes, and the ultimate health outcome, of course, is death. So we work on this project, the National Social Life Health and Aging Project, or NSHAP, and it's a study of the older adult population of the United States. So Um, The sample is representative of all older adults between the ages of 65 and 90 years old um, living at home in the United States. Mm -hmm. So that means that, you know, whatever we find within our sample, we can then extend those findings to say something about the whole older adult population of the United States. For the actual test itself, you had these participants tried to identify some common odors. Can you talk about how the test actually worked? Sure. So the test is really quite simple. I I think just about anybody can sort of imagine how it works, unlike a lot of scientific uh, exams or evaluations, which are pretty complicated. The test is made up of five felt-tip pens. So they're just like um, marks a lot pens or even oh. smelly markers that yeah. you may have used when you were a kid or, you know, it, something similar to what's sitting uh, near your dry erase board in your office, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead of ink in the pens, there is um, odorants, right? Uh, and so there are five different pens with five different odorants and the five odors that we asked people to, to smell and try to identify were rose, leather, orange, fish, and peppermint. And so for each pen, we sort of gently wave it underneath a person's nose, and we ask them, what's that smell like? And then they have a list. It's multiple choice. They have a list of four options with 
uh, a word and a matching picture for each of the options, and they're asked to do their best and try to pick out which of those four a, a given pen smells like. Okay, so for the most part, these five smells should be recognizable to people. I mean, for some tests, you wonder about cultural associations and whether this is something that they would be able to distinguish. So, I mean, I guess these are... Yeah, so for, from, a, from a cross-cultural standpoint, you know, if we wanted to go and administer this test, you know, in China or Japan or someplace that's, you know, culturally, we would have reason to think that maybe these odors, uh, you know, could be different or that people in a, in a different culture might not be as familiar with them. Mm -hmm. That's certainly something that we would want to um, consider. Within a population within the United States, not as big of a concern. Mm -hmm. Just to make sure, though, uh, for our analyses, we went ahead and evaluated whether or not a given pen was having a certain effect mm -hmm. on, our, on our results. I so think. was there something specific about the odor rose that was driving this phenomenon, and we did that for each of the five pens. So and you broke them down separately? Yeah, and, and we, we, we found out that that wasn't a problem, okay. because certainly that's something that, that you want to be sure of. It's sort of a, a typical criticism that, that any good scientist should, should suggest, okay. yeah, for certain. Great. So you had a baseline measure of their ability to smell, and then you waited some time and went back and had them do it again. Yeah, so the NCHAP, um, the National Social Life Health and Aging Project, is a longitudinal study. And so the first wave of data collection took place in 2005, 2006. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, our participants were between the ages of 57 and 85 years old. And so at that time, in addition to the, the rest of the entire interview that's all about their social lives and their physical health and all the additional aims of the study, we also evaluated their sense of smell with this five-item test. And then five years later, we came back for wave two of NCHAP, and in addition to interviewing everybody who was still around and av available to participate, we unfortunately found out in an older adult population, some of those people are either going to be uh, deceased or too sick to interview. And so we were able to figure out, you know, who who was no longer around uh, at wave two. Okay. And so you found that um, so approximately 13% of the entire sample had passed away at wave two, and 40% or approximately 40% of older adults who didn't have a functioning sense of smell at wave one had died at wave two. 19% of those who had um, hyposmia or some sort of deficient sense of smell at wave one uh, were dead at wave two. And only 10% of those who had a normal sense of smell at wave one were dead at wave two. You can really see that association between the ability to smell and the prediction of death increase as you have a worse sense of smell. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so the first thing we thought of was, you know, surely this is being driven by age, right? Mm -hmm. the, the folks that were oldest at wave one, all the 85-year-olds, probably also had the worst sense of smell. Right. And as a result, you know, those older people who had the worst sense of smell were the ones that were most likely to be dead mm -hmm. at wave two follow-up. But it turns out that that's not the case, that the, the distribution of, of poor smellers 
who are dead at Wave 2 follow-up is pretty well distributed from the folks who were 57 mm-hmm. through the folks who were 85 at right. Wave 1. Okay, so it's it's not because of age. And then also you considered several other factors known to impact smell as well. So you had a list of all the things that you made sure to adjust for in your study. I'm curious how those are known to be associated with smell from previous literature. Gender is is really well established uh, with the sense of smell and maybe or maybe not, but I would think plenty of folks would be familiar with uh, men and women in their lives and uh, probably the women in their lives probably have better sense of smell. At least that's my experience (laughs) Uh, anecdotally as well as uh, analytically, I suppose. That's interesting. So you're saying that from previous studies, it seems that women have a more sensitive nose, essentially, or is that, so I, I mean, I always wondered about that in terms of if, um, if, if, if I complained about my husband's body odor, he doesn't, he doesn't have too much body odor, but if I did, is it just because I have a lower threshold for, bearing some kind of unpleasant odor or if it's actually that I'm more sensitive to it versus, you know, um, males on average being. So there's, there's a couple different reasons why you'd want to make sure you, you adjust for gender. The first is which, of which is simply that we know women are going to live longer, right? Okay. So if we're, if we're talking about a, a study of, of mortality, that's certainly something that we're going to want to include. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the, the sense of smell, yeah, I mean, it's it's typically understood that that in just about any sort of smell evaluation you you're gonna do that that women typically outperform men. I see. Um, the other component of it could be is that, and this is a little bit more nuanced, but the task that we're asking these people to do is um, a cognitive task, right? In addition to the the sense of smell that we're evaluating, we're also asking them to do something that's pretty difficult. We're asking them to smell something out of context, right? And then, even though we make it a multiple choice test, they have to put a name and a picture to what they've they've smelled. And that's a really difficult task. So, um, we're familiar with the idea of smelling uh, really pleasant odors on Thanksgiving, right, or something like that. You smell that pie, you smell that turkey on Thanksgiving Day, it's a warm, comforting odor. Mm-hmm. But you also have all of the uh, contextual cues that come with that. You right. know it's Thanksgiving. You know you're in Grandma's house. Whereas giving someone an, an odor um, in isolation, right, without right. any of those cues that comes out of, in this case, a smelly marker, yeah. right, that's a pretty difficult task. Right. And so... Um, women are also, you know, better at, at language tasks typically. Mm-hmm. And so that's another reason why okay. you might consider, uh, con- adjusting for that's gender as well. Point. Okay. Because I guess I'm, I'm thinking about just other tests I've heard of with, in terms of, for example, identifying colors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, this might be stereotypical, but when, for some men, maybe the nuance between peach and just straight up pink might not be that much of... A distinction compared to, um, on average, I guess, women's ability to identify colors. Right. So there's going to be that innate ability that uh, varies between person, right? And then there's going to be the gender component, mm-hmm. whatever that is. Yeah. Um, there's going to be the individual experience mm-hmm. of 
uh, a given person. So the person who's taking a painting class maybe thinks of the difference between peach and pink, uh, as uh, to use your examples, and. and then, of course, the, the cognitive portion of things wherein, you know, the person who is better at tasks of uh, verbal fluency or language is also going to have an effect. And so there are gender components to each of those as well. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about. Socioeconomic status, the idea for making sure we wanted to adjust for that is, unfortunately, uh, a lot of healthcare privileges come with uh, the benefits of socioeconomic status. You might also consider the idea that um, exposures to certain things that would be bad for your sense of smell might be more common with um, low-wage or industrial jobs Mm -hmm. that would be less common um, in sort of white-collar or higher socioeconomic status jobs. So, for example, someone of lower socioeconomic status might live next to a highway or somewhere that has more pollutants? That's a a great point as well, yeah. So certainly, um, you know, if if you thought potentially part of this um, relationship was determined by, um, you know, industrial pollutants or, you know, living next to, you know, a whole lot of car traffic, Mm -hmm. car fumes, that sort of thing, that's another reason why, you know, you want to include socioeconomic status in there. That makes sense. The other thing I was thinking of when I saw the study was, uh, what about taste? What would you expect for a similar test that had taste instead of smell? So we we actually did investigate that as for one of our sensitivity analyses. So in addition to evaluating uh, the sense of smell as part of the project, we're also interested in the, the other senses. Um, and so our taste test included four taste strips like you may have used, uh, you know, in science class where you can yeah. place the, the little paper strip on your tongue and... Uh, it's going to be one of the, the stereotypical, typical tastes, either uh, bitter, sweet, sour, or salty, right? And then same deal, they would have uh, four multiple choice options, which which does this strip taste like? Um, and so that was one of the things we thought too, maybe this is a product of nutrition. So the idea that people are losing their sense of smell, or um, their sense of smell is degrading some kind of way, and that's affecting their either their ability or desire for food. Food doesn't, quote, taste good anymore. Their appetite. So that's, that's another important thing. So typically what, what we think of as taste is actually the sense of smell. Um, uh, what, we, what we perceive as flavors in a, in, instead of taste, those four tastes, salt, sweet, bitter, and sour, right, all of the other sort of complexities of food, like coffee, right? Coffees are really complex flavors. Those are almost all perceived through the sense of smell, Mm -hmm. which is why when you have a stuffed up nose, right? When you have a cold or something like that, things stop tasting good Mm -hmm. because you need your sense of smell to really get the full flavor profile of what something, quote, tastes like. So we thought, okay, maybe these people are losing their sense of taste and, or they're losing their sense of smell and somehow that's translating to, you know, uh, a lack of desire to eat, lack of pleasure from eating, and so their the increased mortality is a product of, of uh, you know, cal- caloric intake, yeah. or perhaps maybe all of a sudden they're eating things, you know, that are uh, bad for them, things really that have gone salty bad or... or spoiled, oh, okay. right, or yeah. or things like that, mm-hmm. and it turns out that when we 
you know, look to see, can we explain this finding with this, our taste test instead of our smell test? Um, there was, there was no such significant result. Wait, not significant in taste? Right. Oh. So, and your interpretation is that it's not because of the caloric intake That's right. difference. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what we thought, too. Yeah. We, we thought, okay, mm -hmm. what could this possibly be? You know, is this, is this because, you know, older people aren't eating anymore, mm -hmm. then they get frail and skinny and sort yeah. of waste well, away and all the things, you know, low body weight mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's associated. And so, you know, are people over the course of five years dying yeah. um, because they're not, they're not eating or their nutrition is really taking a hit? And it turns out... You know, we were able to evaluate that, and it wasn't the case. How can this finding be translated into some kind of useful clinical practice for treating the elderly? I think that the general idea is that if this is some sort of early indicator or early warning system mm -hmm. for people who would be at higher risk for death over five years, that if it were added to a clinical assessment, the idea would be that these are people that, you know, you would want to keep an extra close eye on. Right. So it would basically be a flag to make sure that if, if it's a matter of doctors following up on them more frequently or having the family put together a better support system, something like that, mm -hmm. those could be things. To it's an, uh, yeah, exactly. A flag is a great way to put it. Yeah. An additional piece of information that says, you know, we, mm -hmm. we should take notice. We should look out. Yeah. What would you expect if you were to look at olfactory ability in younger people, younger than the 50s or 60s? Given, given our working hypothesis about what might be going on here, as in that olfaction is sort of a canary in the coal mine about something larger that's going on mm -hmm. um, inside the body, the body breaking down in a different way, and we're able to, to pick it up uh, using a smell test, it would be awfully surprising if we saw similar results in um, in a younger adult population from the point of view that you wouldn't expect so many younger adults to be having those those types of right. uh, you know breakdowns at mm -hmm. that early age. Mm -hmm. It's not if you see any signal, it should be weaker than what you see. Yeah. In those those older population. Yeah. 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 Could it be a predictor of other types of diseases, some sign of the breakdown of the body. I mean, there are other chronic diseases that also involve some kind of deterioration yeah, of your biological system. So that's sort of what, you know, was driving this hypothesis to begin with and how we, we've come to try to understand our results is yeah. that, you know, we know from the literature and a lot of great work that has been, been done previously that um, the sense of smell is linked to um, a whole host of neurodegenerative diseases, whether it be Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, Huntington's, Lewy body. I mean, you you name it, yeah. um, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, all of those neurodegenerative diseases are terrible, mm -hmm. but um, olfaction has been shown to be uh, associated with just about all of them, mm -hmm. and in some cases has been shown to be um, predictive of of people who are going to get sick with those diseases even before cognitive changes mm -hmm. are detectable. So yeah, that's pretty amazing. Longitudinal studies of of people who are at risk 
and they're getting you know some pretty in-depth cognitive evaluation mm -hmm. uh, but also their sense of smell is being evaluated as they go yeah. and it turns out when you look at the data uh, retrospectively um, you can predict the, the people who are going to have problems from their uh, odor tasks yeah. even before you can from their cognitive tasks. So what, what are some biological explanations for why the loss of your sense of smell can precede uh, death? So the main idea that we've been kicking around is this idea that um, it, it might be an early indicator of some sort of global uh, health system. Specifically, we know that the sense of smell regenerates itself. So there are neurons that compose uh, parts of your sense of smell that are able to regenerate themselves. And that's really important because unlike a lot of your other parts of your body, we don't typically think about it, but your sense of smell is actually directly coming in contact with the outside world all the time, right? So uh, take, take yourself back to elementary school science and you study about your skin and your skin is good at protecting and keeping everything inside of you. Uh, but in a really simple way, your sense of smell is actually being exposed to the environment every day, all day long. Mm -hmm. You're breathing in, you know, everything around you and it's being exposed to uh, some things that aren't, aren't so nice out there. And so it's important that it can uh, regenerate itself and um, protect itself so that you have a nice functioning sense of smell uh, as you go through life. Mm -hmm. And so the idea uh, is, is that perhaps, you know, this, these folks who can no longer smell or who are losing their sense of smell, perhaps that's an indicator of this regeneration that is either slowed down or stopped altogether mm -hmm. and telling us something about what's going to happen in the brain or the body as a whole uh, mm -hmm. going forward. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You buy that? that? Nice I buy it. Okay. That's good. <laughs> Um, okay, I guess let's move on to something a little bit lighter then. So you're also interested, as you mentioned earlier, olfactory and behavior. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about pheromones. Okay. How do smells help us attract members of the opposite sex? Uh, <laughs> which species are we talking about? Um, I think in general we're all interested in ourselves yeah. as humans, but if there are some other interesting animals that can tell us something about Sure, no, animals. let's talk about humans. Yeah. I'm most interested in humans too. Yeah. Your question is is definitely very telling because it's um, we want to think about people and pheromones in people as sort of that love potion number nine <laughs> phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. If we can just um, wear the right odor or if we can just uh, give off the right signal, you know, we'll be able to uh, to attract that that dream mate or that person <laughs> that we want to really want to be with. Um, it's in all likelihood, it's you know, not surprisingly, a lot more complicated than that, especially for people. Uh, people are not moths, and uh, it seems unlikely that we would be able to give off uh, a single odor and all of a sudden that person who we have our eye on across the room is going to be drawn to us, right? Like that's it, not what the perfume companies are have as they well, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's advertising. Mm -hmm. They want you to be excited about their, their product. Um, but I think even they would have to concede that, you know, we aren't, like I said before, we aren't moths and uh, we're... Or complex animals mm -hmm. who, who yes, uh, use our, our sensory modalities uh, when it comes to attraction, 
but we also use uh, a lot more in terms of uh, social interaction and language and body language and all of the above, right? That being said, we do produce uh, odors, and as you already uh, suggested, you know, you know your partner's sense, you know the odors that your partner gives off, right? And sometimes, you know, if he's just come from the gym, maybe they're not not so pleasant, right? Or if uh, he left his shoes next to the window, you know, maybe that's (laughs) not so great. But on the other hand, when he's out of town, um, a lot of people are familiar with the idea of, well, my partner's pillow is a very comforting uh, smell, right? You know, they're not there right now, but their their scent is all around me or in specific places around me, mm-hmm. and that can be really comforting. Um, specifically, um, uh, an odor, a chemical, a compound that, that I'm interested in is called androstadienone, mm-hmm. and it's a compound that humans produce. Uh, it's been f- shown to be found in our blood and uh, perhaps more importantly in our sweat and saliva and in our urine. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have done some really neat work that demonstrates that androstadienone uh, can modify uh, our brains and our behavior. So the way we rate people's attractiveness when we've been exposed to whopping doses of androstadienone in mm-hmm. a laboratory changes. Um, the way we rate our own mood, the way we make changes the way we feel. And, um, and given that we produce it, um, that seems like uh, a pretty important thing to study from an evolutionary standpoint. Um, our lab, excitingly, has recently sort of um, expanded some of those findings beyond uh, the sort of love potion number nine take of things to demonstrate that androstadienone actually changes the way your mind processes emotional stimuli. So um, after people have been exposed to the odor, they are actually more attuned to emotional stimuli, whether it be just pictures of people making emotional faces Mm -hmm. or even just emotional words versus words with, you know, no emotional valence attached to them. So that makes me think about scenarios where that would help in a relationship where, you know, if, if the complaint is the partner doesn't have, it is too emotionally shallow <laughs> if, if you bring up some of this compound as some kind of, um, no, relationship helper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, a great, uh, great way to think about it. Um, one of the ways that I, I try to think about it in a specific situation is, is, you know, it's a bit of a just-so story, but, you know, this compound is found in your sweat, you're upset, you're sweating more, you're giving it off, things... Mm. You know, somebody's getting upset, someone is having an emotional reaction in a relationship, and if you can give your partner an additional cue, a chemical cue, that says, you know, look at me, pay attention to my emotions right now, because because I'm upset, or uh, I'm angry, or I'm sad, or whatever signal it might be sending, even if it's not a specific s- signal that that is one of those emotions, it might be a, a more broader emotion that says, hey, you need to pay attention to me and be aware of of the way I'm feeling right now so that you can change your, you know, the way you interact with me appropriately. 
So you, do you think that could be some kind of evolutionary trait that stems from humans and other mammals being um, being social animals that that helps maybe a group of um, you know humans or other mammals to be more cohesive and that will help the long-term survival of whatever that group of animals yeah yeah I mean you could certainly make a, um, a a pretty good argument that in addition to sort of facilitating uh, a relationship with with a partner right one-on-one uh, -on -one, it's an odor so it's diffusing into the the entire environment it's not a specific signal that can only get sent to and received by a single individual but instead yeah if there's a group of, of people around they're potentially all going to be uh, affected by receiving this this chemical signal yeah that was an interview with david kern a co-author of a study that just came out on the open access journal plus one we hope you enjoyed the show for more episodes or information please go to grox.net and follow us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next week on the Grox Science Show. I took my troubles down to Madame Rue. You know that gypsy with the gold cap too. She's got a